Well, good morning and welcome to Regeneration. Uh, we're so glad to have you here this morning. And at Regen, our mission is to interrupt people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. So our prayer is that you would experience that today. Um, if you're new here, we're so glad that you're here. Welcome. Um, on your way out in the back, we have mugs. You can fill out a hay card. We'd love to connect with you. Um, if you've been coming for a while and you haven't filled out a hay card, if you want to get our weekly reconnect emails, fill that card out, and then you'll get um, just updates every week about what's coming up and different things that are happening here at Regen. This month, um, our check-ins for our hashtag RegenGives go to Inspiring Minds, so helping students have a vision for something beyond maybe what they feel like they can do by doing um, tutoring and college visits and things like that. Um, today, right after the service, we're going to be having um, our Discover Regen. So again, if you've been coming for a while and maybe just want to know a little bit more about Regen, um, you can meet the staff, you can hear about our different ministries, what's going on, ways that you can plug in. We'll literally just walk across the lobby and be in the room over there, and we will be having pizza. So um, if you are interested in staying, um, I, we are pretty, I think we're covered on pizza, so feel free, even if you didn't sign up, that you're going to come. We've got you covered. Um, and then, um, actually I think that's, I was going to talk about the couples conference, but I'm going to let Kyle talk about that. And then, uh, you can see Lindsay after the service, um, May 9th is our celebration of the arts at McGuffey elementary school over on the Northwest side of Warren. It's a really fun night. We get to hang out with the kids, help them like make jewelry. And I don't know there's like a bunch of different stuff. Jewelry is not your thing. Um, but see Lindsay and, um, it's about two hours that evening and it's just a really fun opportunity to be together and to serve our community. So I think that's all for announcements, and I'm going to turn it over to Aaron to pray for our offering. Hello, good morning. Hi. James, what are you eating? Fire. Uh, we're going to take offerings, so if you want to go ahead and pray with me, that would be great. Um, Jesus, thank you for being here. Thank you for um, assembling this group of people, um, thank you for giving us things to be thankful for. Um, we are just so incredibly thankful um, for your son and for all that you've blessed us with. Um, we really believe that every good and perfect gift is from above. Um, and so it is with joyful hearts um, that we come together to worship you today um, and to worship you through our giving we do uh, with our money is worship or not. Um, yeah, God, I just ask that you would draw near to us, that you would speak to us, um, that you would open our hearts and our minds for what you have for us to receive. Um, God, I just ask that you would come to us in a real way today, in a way that is powerful um, and lasting and impactful. Amen. So, Father, we just sang true things. Not what might be if we only worked harder or what could be, but what is in this moment absolutely true of those of us who love you. We, we are no longer slaves to fear. We are your children. We are your sons. We are your daughters. We are surrounded by your arms. And God, we come into this place with all of the ways that that doesn't feel true. Uh, it doesn't feel true this week in, in ways for each of us. And so, Father, my prayer this morning is that you would help us kind of move 
what is our experience and what is true about us closer together. Help us to hear you today. Help us to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Have a seat. Uh, Kids are going to go back with Miss Pam. Yeah? So kids, if you're going back to Regen Rangers. That's back there. Um, Some interesting things bubbling up over the course of the summer, um, which is basically already here, I'm realizing. um, There's some rumblings of kind of us starting student ministry for students 6th through 12th grade. Uh, so that's kind of bubbling up, and uh, our ministry to pe- our, our building a community for people in recovery is coming up, launching in the fall, plus some other things. So stuff is hap hap happening. Um, next weekend is the couples conference, and um, I just I guess on, without being desperate, want to plead with you to be there. Um, our marriages are the most important relationships that we have. Um, our marriages are, are well, and even if you're not married, this is not built just solely for married people. Um, but if you're in a serious relationship that you suspect could possibly be moving that direction, I, I would really encourage you to be there too, because investing in this relationship is really huge. Um, and the couple that we're bringing in, Bob and Pam, are just awesome and filled with a ton of wisdom for all seasons of life. And I'm really excited that they said yes to actually, first of all, do our pre-marriage. We've been married six years in June. And uh, Bob and Pam did our pre-marriage and asked us questions and helped us dig into stuff that we wouldn't have dug into otherwise that was really important. And so if, if you're in that relationship, I want to encourage you to be here. Um, and maybe you're like thinking, I'm going to come. I've just not said anything out loud. That will be sad for you on Saturday when there is no food for you. Uh, so if you're planning on coming, please like inform me or Steph after church today so that we can make sure we feed you, okay? Um, it's really going to be excellent, and it's just a couple hours on Friday night and a couple hours on Saturday. It'll be super fun. We're building in newlywed games throughout, so like you'll have to, um, like you and your significant other will like answer questions. It'll be super great, and then I'm hoping that Bob and Pam stick with us through both campuses on Sunday. We'll see. I'm just excited for you to meet them. They're dear, dear friends. That's next weekend. Talk to Steph and I if you are interested in being there. Also, for those of you who um, know Vanessa Hall and her husband, Steph, um, Stefan. So see, we have to get confused because Vanessa has a Steph and I have a Steph. And we all used to be on staff together. And then the word Steph was like flown around left and right. But they had their first daughter, Leona, yesterday, Leona Lucille. Uh, Friday, they had Leona Lucille, and she is precious and tiny and sweet, and they're doing well. So we'll get to meet her in a couple weeks. So, um, We're in this series called Getting Past Your Past, and here is what we know of all of the forces that drive us and shape our relationships, that define us, of all the things that keep us awake at night, nothing maybe does so more terrifyingly uh, as our past, right? So whether it's the mistakes that we have made, the things that we have done, or maybe the things that have been done to us, those things very easily overtake our present and even then our past becomes our present. And that's why Father Richard Rohr says, um, if we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. If we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. And, and this series is all about transforming the pain of our past. This series is all about transforming the pain of our past because if we don't transform that pain, that pain just goes to ground. 
that pain goes to ground and then we just numb it and medicate it either with good things or bad things. We could do it healthy ways or destructive ways. Uh, and so we can use you know, money and, and, and sex and porn, or we can use like Bible studies and Christian music and all of these things to help us avoid really what's going on inside of us. And if we don't deal with the pain of our past, that's what makes us feel stuck, like emptying my pockets. Why don't I just take my wallet out and throw that there too? Okay. Um, nothing makes us feel more stuck in some ways than relational scripts relational scripts. I was in drama club in high school, which meant that you got in the play and you were handed a script and you had to memorize it and that was the role you play. This happens in our lives. Often from childhood, we learn, we, are, we receive a script and we learn to play a role that kind of sticks with us through our whole life. So growing up in your family, you may have been the peacemaker, right? So when everybody fought, uh, you tried to like make the fighting go away. Or maybe in your family, you were the black sheep, right? There was never a rule that wasn't made for breaking. That was you and your family. Some of you and your family, you were like the good one, right? So you were going to make all the right decisions, right? You're, or maybe you're the one that pleases everybody. So you did everything that way. There's a number of roles you can play. There's the victim. If it was anybody's fault, it was always yours. And these roles, we're, we're handed these roles in our families of origin often. But the problem is we don't learn to unread them as we move through life. So we, move, we grow up, we get up out of our houses, we get a job, we, we might get married, we have our own friends, we go to church, and we keep reading that script in our relationships. And so we're trapped in this weird cycle where every relationship kind of feels the same because I don't know how uh, to not be that person. The script I read growing up in my home and the script I have to work not to read um, is also connected to my Enneagram type. I was, I was the one that did things. I was the performer, right? And so I would go to my dad and stepmoms on every, on every Tuesday night and I would just tell them all of the things that I had achieved or performed. Right, because that was the way that I learned how to kind of receive love and be in my family. That's what relational scripts do, but they make us feel stuck when we keep these, keep these scripts with us in our work lives and in our marriages. And so we need to learn how to transform these scripts because when we don't transform these scripts, here's what happens. You just start to feel really tired. You start to feel really tired that all of your relationships feel the same. Maybe you're the kind of person that has no friends and you wonder why that is. Or maybe you're the kind of person that has a million friends, but it's not any of the friendships that you really want. And so we have to figure out what script am I reading? What, 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 what does Jesus want to transform about that script? Because here's the deal. Jesus doesn't want us stuck. Jesus says, John 10, 10, I have come that they may have a rich and satisfying life. That does not imply being stuck in kind of patterns of relational brokenness. Someone who really felt stuck and someone who experienced a dramatic change in their relational script was a guy named Jacob. So we're going to be looking at the life of Jacob this week. We're looking at one family in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. This week we're looking at Jacob and his twin brother Esau. If you have a Bible, go ahead and jump to Genesis 25, but we're going to kind of be all over the place. So um, some of it's going to be on the screen, some of it's not, uh, but Genesis chapter 25. Now we looked at Abraham and his son Isaac last week. Abraham pretended his wife was his sister to protect his own life, and then his son Isaac, placed in a similar situation, does the same thing because we all grow up to one day say, 
you know, I'm never going to do this thing that my parents did, and then we find ourselves doing it, right? And in Abraham's family and his descendants, favoritism and deceit and actually like wives and husbands manipulating each other back and forth is a really common thread. And you can read the generations of the book of Genesis two ways, either like the real housewives of Canaan, right? Or look at what God can do, right? And how incremental it is and small, but it's, it's really powerful. So three things happened in Jacob's life that shaped his script. Three things happened in Jacob's life that shaped his script. And the first one happened right when he was born. Genesis chapter 25, um, verse 24 says, And when the time came to give birth, Rebekah discovered that she really did have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. So they named him Esau. Esau sounds like the Hebrew word for hair, right? He's like those like big brawny Italian guys at a pool that look like a Wookiee, you know, like just hair, right? This is Esau. So they, uh, but then the other twin was born, this is verse 26, the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. So they named him Jacob, Yachov. Hebrew names always sound like another word. If I were to play a joke on you, I would say, what, I'm pulling your chain or yanking your leg? Okay, in, in Near Eastern culture at this time, you don't yank chains or, or yank legs. You grab heels. If you're a trickster, you're, oh, you, you dirty heel grabber, you, right? And so from the very beginning of his life, Jacob, his whole life is kind of set on this trajectory of deceiver or trickster or sly, right? So look at what then happens. As the boys grew up in verse 27, Esau became a skillful hunter. <clears throat> Sorry. Like, there's something about the weather that is making all of this. Candace said to me, uh, I am now in the I have a cold position in bed. Like, all of my pillows have me like. And I was like, I know. Um, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman. But Jacob, (laughs) Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Very early on in their family, it became very clear that favoritism was a problem, that Isaac favored Esau, like the, the wookie, hairy huntsman, right? And that Rebecca liked, 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 liked Jacob. Why? Because he had a quiet temperament and like would do needlepoint with her and, and cooked and, you know, kind of was, uh, I'm always reminded of when our first year of marriage, um, those of you who know me, I like to cook. I'm pretty present in the house. And my father-in-law was with us that first Christmas. And he looks at my mother-in-law and he goes, well, boy, Kyle sure is domestic, isn't he? You know, so he meant well. But I mean, yeah, so I mean, that's kind of, I always think of Jacob. Boy, he sure is domestic, right? And, and as they grow up, this favoritism taints their relationship. And then it all comes to a head one day. Esau is out um, hunting and he comes back and he's hungry. He's not just hungry, he's hangry. Do you know what hangry is? It is when you are hungry and angry at the same time. Or hangsty is when I'm angsty and hungry. Like Steph will be like, and you are, a few weeks ago, we were driving up to the Cleveland Clinic to see somebody. And guys, I was like ready to quit my life. Like I was like, I'm done. I'm done. I've had it with this. I've had it with this. I've had it. I'm quitting. I'm done. I'm, I think I'm just going to, I want to go move away. Let's just go. I'm done. And Steph was like, are you hungry? And I was like, well, maybe. And so she gave me a fruit strip, like a piece of fruit leather. And then there was a granola bar, so I ate that. And then there was like a chocolate-dipped Oreo from a baby shower in there. And I started to feel better. And Steph goes, do you remember when you wanted to quit your life and then you ate a fruit strip? 
Um, uh, that was me. And uh, so Jake, uh, Jacob and Esau, Esau comes back from the field. He's hungry. And, and he, sees, he sees his brother making soup. It says, one day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. And he said to Jacob, I am starved. Give me some of that red stew. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me some of your rights as the firstborn son. Now, being a firstborn was really important in the ancient Near East uh, because you got a double share, a double portion of your father's inheritance. So when Isaac died, his inheritance would be divided into three equal parts. And Esau, because he was the oldest brother, would get two of those shares and Isaac would only get one. Interesting, right? And so... uh, in this moment, Esau, so desperate, tries to sell his birthright. And I found this little poem by a woman named jo- by Jean Stegg, and it says this. It says, Esau said, I'm feeling faint. Ah, said Jacob, no, you ain't. Papa's blessing, Esau cried. It's mine by rights, but I'll have died of hunger first for pity's sake. My birthright for your lentils, Jake. Like, ew, lentils, you know? Your birthright, Jacob murmured, sold, dig in before the stuff gets cold. And in that moment, the text says, Esau showed contempt for his rights as firstborn son. And in effect, uh, in effect, Jacob became the firstborn because he was now going to get a double share of his father's inheritance than his brother. Well, this is all well and good, but then it gets really ugly when it gets close uh, and time for Isaac to die. This is in Genesis chapter 27. I'd read it. It reads like good TV. Um, and, and in Genesis 27, Isaac is dying. Um, he is blind. And blindness in the Old Testament is always physical and spiritual, by the way. It's always dual. Frankie knows. Um, and, uh, and so uh, it's time for... Uh, Isaac to die. And when that happens, the father would declare a blessing on their firstborn son. Uh, In the text, it's always kind of set off poetically. And and there was this belief culturally at the time that these words weren't just like a greeting card, but they actually shaped the destiny of the son who heard them and received them. And so when Isaac says, Esau, I want you to go out, I want you to kill something, make my favorite dinner, and then I'm going to bless you. Rebecca overhears this. Rebecca overhears this. And in chapter 27, verse 5, I know I have this, Dan. It says, Rebecca overheard what Isaac had said to his son Esau. Do you notice that? His son Esau. So when Esau left to hunt for the wild game, she said to her son, Jacob. Super interesting, right? Listen, I overheard your father say to Esau, bring me some wild game and prepare me a delicious meal, and then I will bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now, my son, listen to me. Do exactly as I tell you. Go out to the flocks and bring me two fine young goats, and I'll use them to prepare your father's favorite dish. Then take the food to your father so he can eat it and bless you before he dies. But, but Jacob's like, listen, my voice is like higher pitched than Esau's, and Esau is so hairy, he's going to know it's not me. And she says, well, why don't you take some of that goat skin and wrap it on your arms and put it on your neck? So he goes in, he goes, hi, dad. <clears throat> I mean, hi, dad, right? And uh, Isaac says, come here, my son. I want to know if it's really you. Is that really you? And so he comes in and he says, let me feel your arms. He feels his arms and he feels that goat fur. He says, let me feel your neck. And he feels that neck and he feels his goat fur. Isaac, blind, thinks Jacob is Esau and blesses Jacob. Uh, And the text is super interesting. I don't have it on the screen. The text is chapter 27, verses 28 and 29. From the dew of heaven and the richness of earth, may God always give you abundant harvest and grain and bountiful new wine. 
May many nations become your servants and may they bow down to you. Check this part out. And may you be the master over your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. All who curse you will be cursed and all who bless you will be blessed. So Jacob receives this blessing and is like, yes, because now he has the inheritance and rights of the firstborn son and he has now received the blessing his father intended for his firstborn son. And Esau comes back from hunting and finds out that all of this has happened. Now, if I'm Esau, I would never go hunting again. Do you know what I mean? Like every time I leave, Jacob's trying to trick me, so I'm not going anywhere, right? Esau's not the brightest crayon. You know what I mean? Like he's not the brightest light bulb. So he goes, comes back and finds out. He says, Father, I'm ready for you to bless me. And he goes, well, I already blessed you. He says, no, you didn't. So he says, Father, is there anything that you have left for me? His dad says, well, I've already blessed him and said that he's going to lord over you. Oh, boy. And so in chapter 27, verse 41, it says this. Um, from that time on, Esau hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing. And Esau began to scheme, I will soon be mourning my father's death and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Do you see how this is a script that they're reading from? Like how they're kind of locked in this cycle of deceiving and being deceived and tricking and being tricked and, and favoritism and competition. They're locked in this cycle because... This is the role that they've learned how to play. They don't, know, they don't know how. Jacob and Esau don't know how to be brothers in any other way than this. And it's, it's beyond like your normal brotherly poking, right? And so this script has totally ruined their relationship, and Jacob has only one choice. He runs away. He cuts and runs, and he runs, and he runs, and he runs, until he gets to a place called Padam Aram, Padam Aram, where his uncle Laban lives. And he goes and lives with his uncle Laban, for a number of years. He gets married to two women, which causes him a whole lot of problems later on. We can talk about that at another time. Um, and then the trickery, Yehov, deceiver, it comes back to bite him again because he tricks his uncle out of some stuff and they too have to run away. And his uncle says to him, what is that thing people say? Um, uh, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Right? That's essentially what Uncle Laban says to Jacob. He says, you can't go home, but you, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. So Jacob packs up all of his cattle and his servants, and he's accrued quite a bit of wealth at this point, and he heads home. Now, at this point, I just want to make a point, because we're going to be in Genesis 32 for a while, that the Bible is not a psychological textbook. Okay? So the theological purposes of what happens in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are a little different than, like, relational scripts and patterns. What, what, what we do see in their lives, some principles that see, we working out, see working out in our lives and we can reflect on that and watch how, watch how Jacob is transformed through them, right? Because here's Jacob trapped in this pattern of relational scripts, trapped in the script of competition, all these kinds of things, and, and now he's gone off to Uncle Laban and that script, he doesn't know how to do anything but read that script. So he goes and he reads it. And it causes him problems again. So Uncle Laban chases him out, and he finds himself now with only one option. He has to go home. He has to go home. And this just fills Jacob with dread. I mean, it's about 70 years have gone by. Jacob returns to his homeland when he's about 97 years old. He's an old dude by now. Decades have gone by. He's had 11 children. But he's got to go home, and he gets, 
he gets to that border, flip with me to Genesis 32, he flips to that border, and he gets to that border of the land where his brother Jacob is living, and he sends a message. It says in uh, chapter 32, verse 3, Jacob sent messengers ahead to his brother Esau, who was living in the region of Seir in the land of Edom, and he told them, give this message to my master Esau, humble greetings from your servant Jacob. Until now I have been living with Uncle Laban, and I now own cattle, donkeys, flocks of sheep and goats, and many servants, both men and women. I have sent these messengers to inform my Lord of my coming, hoping that you will be friendly to me. Okay, it doesn't take a genius. You don't need a degree in biblical scholarship to know that all of that is, is BS, right? All of, there's, it, what really isn't matters isn't the words themselves, it's the words under the words, okay? So first, humble greetings from your servant Jacob. Hey, buddy, right? Until now, I've been living with Uncle Laban, a.k.a., a.k.a., uh, you know, um, I, I haven't been hiding I haven't been plotting. I've just been hanging out with Uncle Laban, NBD, okay? By the way, I now own cattle, donkeys, flocks of sheep and goat, and many servants, both men and women, a.k.a. I'm not coming to steal from you. Then I've sent these messengers to inform my Lord of my coming, hoping that you will be friends with me, a.k.a. Let's just let bygones be bygones, buddy. Let's just, like, bury the hatchet, dude. Let's just, you know, 70 years no big deal, everything's fine now, let's just be cool, right? Check out verse six. After delivering the message, the messengers returned to Jacob and reported, we met your brother Esau and he is already on his way to meet you with an army of 400 men. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Verse seven, Jacob was terrified with the news and in that terror, he goes back to that script. And it talks about how he divides his household in two and puts some over here and some over here because you can't kill two groups of people. You only can kill one, really, right? So he divides it up. And then later on, it talks about how he sends ahead in verse 14, all this stuff, female goats and male goats and ewes and rams and camels and cows and bulls and donkeys and male donkeys. Sends a whole lot of rodeos across the river to his brother and he t- sends servants carrying them. This is, this is what vassals would give the, the lords that ruled over them in the ancient Near East. This is like a kingly gift. He's not giving it to his brother to like give him a nice gift. Why is he giving him to him? Because it's really hard to kill people with you've got a sword in one hand and three donkeys in the other. It's really hard to carry out a military strategy if amongst your men are the other guy's men. Right? So all of this is trickery. This is all, this is all Jacob at 97 with the, with the sly guy. But Jacob is afraid and he does something that he's only ever done once before in his life. He prays. He prays. Look at verse 9. It says... Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. When you read the book of Genesis, pay attention for when a character stops calling him, stops referring to God as the God of my fathers, and starts referring to him as my God. That always indicates spiritual movement. So he's not there yet, though. He says, O God of my grandfather Abraham and God of my father Isaac, Lord, you told me, return to your own land and to your relatives, and you promised me I will treat you kindly. I am not worthy of all the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown to me, your servant. And when I left home and crossed the Jordan River, I own nothing except a walking stick. Now my household fills two large camps. Oh, Lord, please rescue me from the hand of my brother. I am afraid that he is coming to attack me along with my wives and my children. And I, but you promised me I will surely treat you kindly and I will multiply your descendants until they become as numerous as the sands along the seashore. Too many to count. Jacob prays. 
God, please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau. He prays what we pray every time that we are caught in a relational script. Fix it, Jesus, right? But who does he want to be delivered? He says, deliver me from his hand. It's always kind of about the other person. God, fix that person that I'm caught in this pattern with. Fix, fix my family member, fix my kids, fix my friend, fix my sister, fix my brother. Fix. And God answers this. God delivers him out of the hand of Esau, but look at how he does it. Flip to verse 22 of this chapter. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two sons and his, took his two wives and his two servants' wives and his 11 sons and crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. This left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man came back and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. And when the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of his socket. And the man said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Well, what is your name? The man said. He replied, Yehov, trickster. Yehov. Your friend will no longer be a Yehov, for now your name will be called Hisrael, because you have fought or striven with God and won. You have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name. Well, why do you want to know my name? The man replied, and he blessed Jacob there. And Jacob named them place Peniel, which means face of God, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. Jacob prays to be delivered and rescued, and instead of killing Esau or making his magic, his army magically disappear, see, by the way, Jesus is never bibbidi-boppidi-boop, it's done. It doesn't work like that. Instead, God comes in and he changes Jacob's relational script. He comes and he transforms Jacob. See, Jacob is a manipulator and a deceiver and a liar, and he, and, and he wrestles, but he doesn't wrestle with his body. He wrestles with words. He, he strives with men and women, and he gets them to do what he wants. He forces them to submit to his will because he is just as capable with his words and his deceit as any pro wrestler in the Olympics is. He's just as good. And so the only way, the only way that the Lord can get that deceit and manipulation and trickery out of Jacob is to wrestle it out of him. Basically, the sin gets kicked out and beat out of Jacob. But oddly, oddly, Jacob feels like he's winning, right? Jacob feels like he's winning. And in fact, it says that he overcomes the Lord and, has, and gets the Lord to give him a blessing. And, and so much is happening in this. But the Lord meets Jacob just as Jacob needs to be met. And he does that with us. God doesn't kind of, God, God has not this, doesn't have this one size fits all way of transforming people. He does, but at the same time, it is always personal. It is always tailored to you and to me and what we need. And in this case, he takes the guy who wrestles with his words and wrestles him to the ground and totally changes him. And three things happen. First, Jacob, Jacob will limp for the rest of his life, Right? Guy popped his socket out, and I mean, which was probably easy. He was 97, and now he walks with a limp. Now he walks with a limp his entire life. Even though all of this stuff is in the past, it still kind of carries with him into the present. And here's the deal. When we get past our past, it doesn't, like, disappear. It doesn't, like, fade from memory. But what it stops doing is grabbing our stomach in the same way it's always grabbed it. 
that stress that you feel, it doesn't do it the same way. It doesn't do it the same way. Instead, what happens is it, it, it just kind of becomes less and less and less. That's how we know we're healed. And by the way, the first person to ever tell me that was Pam McRae, who's coming to do the marriage event next weekend and the couples event next weekend. The way that we know we're being healed is that this thing doesn't grab us. He walks with a limp, but it's not an open womb. That's the first thing. The second thing is Jacob has to do the hard work of wrestling. Do you want to know what it's like to follow Jesus? It's a wrestling match. And Jesus gets all up close. And that work of living into what is true about ourselves and being healed and moving forward, that work, that work feels a lot like wrestling. Oddly, the Hebrew word for wrestle is the same word as embrace. The same word for wrestle is the same word for embrace because in that process, we have to embrace God. In that process, we have to get up close. In that process, we have to draw near. Finally, what notice that Jacob gets a new name. New names in the Old Testament are like baptism in the new. It, it, it indicates a radical change in that person's character and in their life. And in my mind, what I see happening here is Jacob has always wanted one thing. He's wanted to win. But the only way he knew how to win, the only way he knew how to get his way was to lie and cheat and steal his way there. And God says, if you want to win, how about I change your name to winner? If you want to have victory, how about I change your name to victorious? My friends, Jesus wants to change your name. That's what happens. I was teaching this to a group of sixth and seventh graders at our church in Illinois. And I said, guys, what would happen if, you want, if God gave you a new name? What do you think that name would be? And this little girl who had like big wide doe eyes and a little tiny voice and never talked said right out of the gate, she who is not afraid. And I had to kind of go cry it out for a minute, right? She was precious and she said, that's who God wants me to be. I, there's a good exercise to what name does God want to give you? The next morning, Jacob is still afraid to meet his brother Esau, and then Esau is coming. And look at chapter 33, verse 4. It says, then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they both wept. For those of you who know and are familiar with the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, these are all of the same words. When the younger brother comes back to his father's house, after squandering his life and making all of these mistakes, the text says he, the father ran to him, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. But the most important word in this little sentence is both, that they both wept. Jacob weeping on his brother's shoulders is a sign of radical transformation of his script. Jacob crying on his brother's shoulder is a sign of radical transformation of his script. So here's how our relational scripts change. God begins first by changing us. I don't know if I earned my money this week, but that's what the text says. You want your relational scripts to change? If you want the dance, I once had a counselor tell me relationships are like a dance. If you want the dance to not be a salsa and you want it to be a waltz, it begins with you. And we spend the vast majority of our time praying that God would change them. We pray, God, would you change my coworker or my friend or my spouse or my son or my daughter or my parents? And God puts the onus on us 
to invite us to be transformed, to uh, invite us to operate out of our new name. Because God has given you a new name. And it takes some time to uncover that. But we even saw that in the book of Revelation, right? I will give them a stone with a new name on it that only they who have that name will understand it. We receive a new name. Living into that new name is a little hard. I want to give you three next steps like I keep giving every week. The first is, if you haven't already, read the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro. Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro, that. And I think in your program this morning, there's info about a small group that Art and Pam are launching in a few weeks as a next step to kind of this series to actually do the work. I said last week, sermons don't end things. They start them. They start processes. You can also meet with them one-on-one, and there's information about how to do that in your program. Um, But um, one of the things that I would say... about that process is you're going to have to do the work. The first session of that small group is entitled Dealing with Your Father Wound. So it won't just be more like, let's talk about it and pray. It's going to be like, let's get to work. That's coming up. Lastly, we have a counselor available to us. Everybody should go see counseling. And don't let there be a family narrative of we don't do that because we're not those kinds of people. Right? I've heard that my whole life. And if I listen to that, I would not be whole, okay? So we, we pursue that. Let me pray. We're going to take communion and get out of here. God, thank you that you have a heart to transform us and give us a new name. Help us hear you speaking that name over us today. Help us to hear you speaking that name over us. Give us the healing that you so long for us and help us to do that work with you. Thanks that we don't do it alone. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love this meal. Love this meal. And I've been saying this a lot about it lately. But I love it because it teaches us that brokenness is not a bad thing. Man, in our culture, do we spend a lot of time and money and energy trying not to be broken? The problem isn't being broken. The problem is um, not being mended. And the cracks are where the light light shines through. The problem is not being empty. The problem is that it is possible to be poured out for the sake of others and in that to find wholeness. Sometimes we need to be emptied before we can be filled. Like, here's something. Some of you need to actually empty the cup of bitterness before you can be healed. Like, some of you actually have to, like, empty the cup of unforgiveness. Some of you actually have to empty the cup of, like, your parents' stuff before you can be healed. And you keep walking around with all this stuff in here, and you keep wondering why it's not changing. It's because you've not emptied the cup yet. I don't know what that means or even how to do that, but it just crosses my mind. So we pray that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup, that they might become for us the body and the blood of Christ. And that in the eating and drinking of them, we might be healed today, Father. Just a little bit. Um, um, Steph um, and Art and um, Jenna Byler. 
Okay, you have a little cold, so let's not do that. That's an excellent idea. Randy, could you, are you, are you not ill? Okay, come over here. All right. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Let's flip so it's not like a boy's thing, girl's thing, huh? Okay. There you go. That happened last week, and I was like, it makes it look like men have to go to one line and women have to go to another. That's not true. Hey, the table is open. There's a verse I wanted to read for you from Philippians and I was reading it and I guess I wanted to read this to you. Verse 8 says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I was like, oh, that's how I feel about you guys. Verse 6, I am sure of this. I actually like how the message says it. There's never been the slightest doubt in my mind that the God who started this great work in you will bring it to, will keep at it and bring it to a flourishing finish on the day that Christ Jesus appears. I love you. We're going to have Discover Regen, and uh, if you just want to stay and eat pizza, that's fine, because there's a lot of it. So, um, peace. We'll see you next time.